just by way of review, because we're going to cover this over and over again. This is the verse that we begin every class period in the school with, uh, in my Bible class. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. It's the prayer I whisper every time I sit down to study God's word. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. You'll remember we talked about effective Bible study requires a method. A method is a strategy, a plan of attack that will yield maximum results for your investment of time and effort. The formula that we're constantly referring to, the right steps plus the right order equals the right results. And the three ingredients to successful Bible study, we see this all the time. Observation, interpretation, application. Observation is what do I see? Interpretation, what does this mean? And then application, what should I do with this information? All right. When we're talking about observation, remember the elements of observation, terms, structure, literary form, and atmosphere. I'm going to repeat these constantly. Interpretation, what are the keys to proper interpretation? Ask questions, find answers, and then integration, taking that information and using it properly. And then the application. What are the implications for me and the implications for others? This is the so what of Bible study. And always keep in mind the big picture. What's the big picture? God created man. Man messed everything up. God's son fixed everything. And if you'll believe on his death, burial, and resurrection, you'll not only be restored, but you'll gain more in Christ than you ever lost in Adam. And that's the big picture. And if things don't point back to that, they're of not much use. Um, So always keep the big picture in mind. Then we said three steps for careful, effective Bible study. Read, record, and reflect. Read, record, and reflect. And now what we're doing now for the next couple of weeks, in fact, Lord willing, we may finish this next week, is we're looking at ten strategies for first-rate reading. Read thoughtfully, read repeatedly, read patiently, read selectively, read prayerfully, read imaginatively, read meditatively, read purposefully, read acquisitively, and read telescopically. Now, some of those things, it's obvious what they mean. Some of them, we're going to have to get into it, but that's what we've been working through. Last week, we talked about reading thoughtfully. We talked about reading repeatedly, and we talked about reading patiently. Now, we find ourselves in this new section reading selectively, reading selectively. So let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. By the way, go ahead and turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. I meant to tell you that earlier. I'm sorry. Luke 24. And when you found your place, we'll pray, and we'll jump right into it, Okay. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather. Lord, please help me to never take for granted what a wonderful thing it is to gather corporately to worship you and to study your word. I am very thankful for those quiet times that I have in my study, at my home, whatever, in which it's just me and you. I cherish those times. And I hope to deepen those times. But Lord, I'm also thankful for when I get to sit down with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we study the Bible together. And we experience the wonder of corporate worship. May we always be reminded that the command in Hebrews 10 and elsewhere is not because you have to satisfy some kind of ego trip. Or that you're just vindictively offering something you want us to do because you can. But, Lord, all of your commands are meant for our good. They're meant for our benefit. You you, you extend these commands and these instructions that we might live life to the absolute fullest. And may we see that as a gift. So thank you that we're here tonight together. Now, there's some that want to be here but can't. Maybe they're watching online. I pray that you'd minister to them there. I pray for those that could be here and aren't, those that maybe have settled for online but shouldn't, Or maybe that those aren't even thinking about it, Lord. That's certainly possible. I pray you'd speak to their heart. 
And I pray you'd guide them and help them and draw them back close to you. And uh, Lord, just be with us tonight. I pray that Jesus will be lifted up and made much in this. Lord, would you help me not to be just so academic, but Lord, that, that there to be some life to this. Lord, I want to be effective in my teaching. I am, I am so convinced that this is the right course for us, but Lord, sometimes I might come short in how I deliver it. So Lord, would you help me in that? And would you speak to us in an unusual way even tonight? Lord, would you be those of master clubs? Would you be with the leaders and the workers, Lord, and the young people? God, would you be with those in teen group? Would you just guide their words and help them? And just give them all just a wonderful time in your house tonight. Be with those in discipleship. And uh, Lord, just help them as well. We give this time to you and ask you to make the most of it for our sake. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen. Reading selectively. Now, if you have the book, um, this is pages 94 through 99. And of course, if you have the book, you know I have diverged from it a great deal, trying to tweak it and make it most useful for us. Some of the things I flat out disagree with, um, and uh, that's okay too. But, uh, but we're covering pages 94 through 99 in this section. And what does it mean to read selectively? Well, what he's talking about here is, he puts it this way, using the right techniques, what he calls bait, to catch the information that you need. I would, I would reword that and say it this way, being selective in what you're trying to observe. When I go to the Word of God, sometimes I am trying to glean a specific truth, or I am trying to glean something in the realm of prophecy, or I'm trying to glean something in the realm of, of, uh, of history, or I'm cl- trying to glean something in the realm of you know, something I need as a pastor or an answer I'm looking for. But it's knowing how to use the right approaches to read and get what you need in that moment. Okay, That's what we mean by reading selectively. So we're going to use Luke 24 as a, as a passage of, of, of experiment. I, I don't know how far we'll get tonight. We didn't get, we were supposed to cover this last week and we didn't, and we may not get out of this tonight. We'll see. But, uh, but let's look at Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Jesus, of course, has risen from the dead Verse 13, behold, two of them went that same day, two disciples, two followers of Christ, went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? I've always smiled when I read that. Jesus, in the middle of all of it, looks at him and says, What things? They said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher, and when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had only seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive, and certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. And said he unto them, O fools, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things? And to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, what a sermon that must have been. The living word of God preaching the written word of God all about himself. Man. Verse uh, 28. And they drew nigh into the village whither they went and He made as though he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening. 
and the day is far spent, and he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Joe Arthur uh, has preached this message many times, and he makes the case that when he reached out and handed them the bread, that they saw the nail marks in his hands, and that's how they knew. I don't know if that's the case, but it sure is a nice thought. Um, Either way, they knew who he was. Verse 32 And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. Okay, so that's the passage we want to work through tonight. Reading selectively, and we're going to use six questions. We're going to ask six questions in our reading selectively, okay, using this passage as our template. First of all, question number one, who? Now, when we ask the question who, what what are we saying? Okay, who are the people involved? In this passage, just in what we read, before they go to see the other disciples, there's three people involved. Who are they? Jesus, Cleopas, and an unnamed disciple. Who was that? Nobody knows. The easiest explanation would be Cleopas' wife. But I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. All right? What is said about these who's? Okay, well, it said of Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, they were sad. They didn't believe that Jesus rose. They didn't recognize him when they saw him. They ultimately did and witnessed to others accordingly. Third question, what do they say? Not what is said about these people here. What do they say? Well, verses 17 through 24, verses 29 through 34 answer that question. So the first question is who? And that's what you want to do. When you're you're digging into a passage, you want to look. Now, when I say the term characters, I don't mean that these are characters in a fictional story. I hope you know that. All of this is real. None of this is fiction. Okay. But the characters, who's involved in this narrative? Jesus, Cleopas, and an unnamed disciple. And then what is said about them and what do they say? All right. Now, second question, what? And when we ask the question, what, first, the first what we want to know is what's happening. And that's an important question. If, if I were to, and I won't do this, but if I were to single somebody out and say, okay, now recount to me what we just read. Would you be able to understand and then recount the narrative that we just read? Because that's, that's the lion's share of Bible study right there, is, is if you read something and you, you don't have a good handle on what's going on, what do you do? You read it again, and you keep digging until you can. You, you, need to, you need to be able to recount what's being said, okay? And so be able to do that. Now, the next one, the next what is, what is the argument or the point? These passages have an argument that they're making or a point that they're trying to drive you to. What, what would you say is the, the point of this, this occasion of them walking to the road to Emmaus. I'll tell you what I think it is. And by the way, our answers can be different. What's the point? Here's the point. I think the point is the power of God's word. That's what I think is the point. Now, why would I think that? Look at verse 27. What did Jesus do to reveal himself. He began with his word. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What was the result? Verse 32. 
They said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? What is the focal point of the road to Emmaus? I don't think the focal point is two people discovering, hey, it's Jesus. I think the focal point here is the power of the word of God and what it does in people's hearts and where it leads them. That's the point. If we were to use an example of of, of another portion of Scripture, what would you say is the point or the main argument of the book of Hebrews? You could say the theme. Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than everything. Better than the... Better than the the Aaronic priesthood, better than the law, better than angels, better than man, better than the sacrifices, and the list goes on and on and on. Then the third what? What's happening? What's the argument? What's the main point? And then what's right or wrong with this picture? And when I read through, when I read through this passage, the, the overarching thing that comes to me, what's right or wrong with this picture, they should have known. They should have known what the word said about what would happen to Jesus. They should have known not to be sad. They should have known it was him. Have you ever given some thought to how in the world could they be walking down the street with Jesus and not known it was him? The same way God can speak into our lives and we don't notice either. Same way. I'll tell you another good good, good narrative to read if you want to get a clear what's right or wrong with this picture. How about David and Bathsheba? sometimes you'll see people watching old spooky movies. Oh, no, don't go in there. Oh, no, don't do this. Oh, no, don't. When you read the story of David and Bathsheba, you kind of get that, don't you? David, what are you doing? David, get to war with the other kings. David, don't look that way. David, don't invite her up. David, don't do it. And you see plenty of what's wrong with this picture and where it leads. So who? What? Number three. Where? Where? Where, what is the story's location? Well, we know that. They're on the road to Emmaus. Location, especially in the Gospels, it's really important to get a handle on locations. Uh, If I were to take a trip to the Holy Land, and I could only see one thing, and there's so much I'd want to see. I'd want to see Gordon's Calvary. I'd want to see the the garden tomb. I'd want to see the the temple mount. I'd, I'd want to see, you know, the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. I'd want to see all of that. But if I could only see one one landmark or one area in all of the Holy Land, that's easy. I'd want to see the Sea of Galilee because so much of Jesus' ministry took place around and even on the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, I, I think about, you know, location, like, like when, when, when he walks on the water. Remember, what's he doing before that? He's praying. He's up on the mountain. He can see them. The, the Sea of Galilee is not wide enough. He could see them down there, toiling and rowing. And he walked to them. And I've just, you know, you you imagine the location, you imagine the topography and things like that, and it goes a long way to opening up the Scriptures for you. It really does. In this case, it's the road to Emmaus. Then, okay, where are they coming from? Where are they going? Well, they're going from, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about seven and a half miles west of Jerusalem. Those furlongs. Taking notice of where things are going or coming is important. Like, for instance, when Jesus healed Bartimaeus, knowing 
where he's headed and where he's coming from goes a long way to help you with the confusion about coming into Jericho versus going out of Jericho. It's useful. Then, is there a journey taking place? There actually is. They're walking down the road. I'll tell you, two other journeys that pop to mind. How about the wilderness wanderings for 40 years? <laughs> you got 40 years worth of material right there. How about this? Did you know that uh, John, I think it's John 11 to 17, or John 13 to 17, I can't remember now, but it's either 11 or 13, which means it's probably 12. All takes place walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're walking. Is there a journey taking place? So who, what, where, when? When? When do these events take place? Well, these particular events take place immediately following the resurrection of Christ. And then you ask, when do they occur in relation to Scripture? Well, this immediately follows the passion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. i tell you an area that this really is helpful is if you're reading the epistles of Paul, try to match them up with what's happening in the book of Acts. You know? And you can match up most of it. And it gives you an idea of what's going on when things are happening, and that's, that's useful. Then, when was this written? When was this written? Well, the events that we're reading about took place uh, A.D. 29 or so. A.D. 29. Jesus was 33, and that calendar is off by about four years. So about A.D. 29. Okay. The Gospel of Luke is written somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D. So we're talking about a 30-year gap. Is 30 years enough time to really corrode the story? Or does Luke still have a pretty good idea of what happened? Yeah. Of course, we also count on inspiration to keep it right too. But So when was this written? The Gospels are a good example of that. The Epistles are a good example of that. So we've got who, what, where, when, number five, why. Have you ever read a passage of Scripture and wondered why was this included and why was this not included? Why did God see fit to give us this information and not? In this particular passage, what, what do you think I'd most like to know? Who was the other disciple? Now, is that going to be anything earth-moving for me as a Christian? Probably not. But I'm curious. Why do we not know? Why was this included? Why was this not? I'll tell you another good example of this. From a literary point of view, you know what book seems unfinished to me? Jonah. I'd like to know a little more. Now, we can kind of assume some things, but Jonah kind of ends abruptly, doesn't it? I'll tell you another book that does. I'd like for Acts to go a few more chapters. Why did God not take it further? I don't know. I don't know. How about this? Why does this follow or precede that? Why do we have the order that we have? And we don't see that as much in this passage, but I'll tell you one I wonder about. Why did God create things in the order that he did? He could have done it any order he wanted. Well, he had to have light to see. No, he didn't. He could have done light last. He could have done everything and then went, ta-da! But he didn't. You say, well, is this really a good exercise? Sure it is. Anything that meditates us on the Scripture is a good exercise. Anything that we're, we're using to think about God's Word is a good exercise. And it is always good to ask questions. Then thirdly, why does this end here? Or why does this not at all end? Why is it left open-ended? So you got who, what, where, when, why, how often, to what extent, is not the next two grammar people. Okay. The next one is 
wherefore. This is one of those areas that I disagree with him on. I get the alliteration. Let's keep it. Let's keep it in W's. I get that. But I would put something different. I'd put so what? Because that's what he means. Because after you've done this, after you've answered your who, what, where, when, why, that's the next question. Okay, so what? What do I do with this? That's reading selectively. And I am shocked beyond measure that I got that done in, by 740. There may be hope we get this done tonight. Maybe. So read selectively. Next up, read prayerfully. And this covers pages 100 to 105. Read prayerfully. Is there any part of our Christian discipline that shouldn't be bathed in prayer? Nope. Nope. And so certainly, certainly as we read the Word of God, we should do so prayerfully. Now as you do that, a couple of tips here. This is a short one. Do not try to imitate. Don't let your prayerful approach be like somebody else's prayerful approach. Um, I, when my kids come to talk to me, I don't want them to imitate somebody else in how they talk to me. I want them to be them. And I want to hear from them. Oh, but when we get into the matter of prayer, if we're not careful, we, we, we try to imitate, don't we? So what should we do? First of all, be like children. When you come to the Lord with a, with a passage, be like a child. A child believes that God wants to hear from them. A child believes that God wants what's best for them. A child believes that if they ask God for something, they're going to get it. Should we not come to God, God's word in the same manner? Lord, I'm coming to you believing you want me to understand your word. You, you, know, you know the Bible does teach that God intends that we understand it. This isn't in the outline, but let's go take a look at it. Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. If you ask most people what's the most uh, daunting book of the Bible, most people will say Revelation. I don't feel that way. There's far more daunting books than Revelation to me. All right. But most people just have this, this inherent intimidation of the book of Revelation. And so let's use this as our, our point of reference. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I told my kids in Bible class, you want to you be like chalk, nails on a chalkboard with me, call it revelations. Don't do that. It's revelation, singular. It's only one revelation, one big one, not revelations. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed, multiplied happinesses, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. If you hear and obey something, is it implied that you've understood it? Yeah. God's not going to offer a reward for something that he knows you'll never, you'll never accomplish. He intends for you to understand his word. Now, let's pause. Does that mean we're going to understand all of it? No. But this idea that we've got to come to God hat in hand begging him to reveal truth to us is not God. God wants to teach us things. God wants us to know what pleases him. God wants us to know the right way to live. It's not some mystery you have to crack. God wants us to understand things. And so be like children. I say, you know what else? Be like new Christians. Be like new Christians. There is few things that breathe life into a church like new Christians. New Christians that have not figured anything about how to be a, a, a um, you know, 
a dignified Christian. They haven't learned any of it. And I love it. Oh, yeah, it'll make you pull your head out, your hair out, not your head, your hair out sometimes. But, uh, you know, somebody has just gotten saved, and, man, they're just excited to be going to heaven. They have no idea yet that some things can't be in their lives anymore. They have no idea yet that, you know, this has to change and that has to come. And They're just excited to be going to heaven. And they'll come running up to you. Preacher, I was reading my Bible last night. Did you know this was here? When's the last time you or me got that excited about reading the Word of God? Hmm. Now, as you when you when you when you read prayerfully, be like children, be like new Christians. And something that I think is an excellent thing to do is pray the scriptures. Pray the scriptures. Go to Psalm fifty-one. You, if you've been with me very long at all, you know that this is a passage that I'm in every day of my life. In addition to whatever other Bible reading I'm doing, it is a given that I am going to read the proverb of the day and I'm going to read Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 most beautifully outlines a repentant heart. And I want to keep my heart soft and repentant. It records David's prayer of repentance after Nathan said, Thou art the man, and he got right with God. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. I cannot tell you how many times the Holy Spirit has convicted me about something in my life and my immediate response was not, oh Lord, I'm so sorry for my sin. Oh Lord, please forgive me. My immediate response without even thinking is have mercy upon me, oh God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sins, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before thee. Pray the scriptures. Here's how I see it. God said it better than I ever could. You know? Another good example. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 18. Man, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna pray something that I'm not talking about some kind of magical chant. But, but I want to I pray something that, that just, just brings God's power into my life. Well, here's a really good template. A prayer that is but 63 words long. 1 Kings 18, verse 36. They're on, the, they're on Mount Carmel. They've set up the two altars. They've put the, they've put the wood on it. They've put the, the, uh, the, uh, the animal on it. Elijah's put water all over his. The prophets of Baal have cried. and Remember, they're trying to get God to rain fire down on the altar. And some of these brainiac prophets of Baal are standing on the altar asking God to do that. Think about that for a second. Standing on the altar, Lord, burn up this altar. Not smart. Not smart. They've been unsuccessful. Elijah's made fun of them a bit. Verse 36, came to pass time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, and he read his 63 words, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. That's it. What happens? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. There's an excellent lesson to be learned from that. Long prayers aren't necessarily quality prayers. Especially at the dinner table, friends. John R. Rice used to say, you don't need to preach a sermon. Thank the Lord for the food and get after it. 
something to think about. John R. Rice was right about a lot of, th- a lot of things. And then, of course, Psalm one nineteen eighteen that we, we, we pray all the time, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now, here's a caution, something to watch out for. When you're praying the scriptures, be very careful that it doesn't turn into a vain repetition. Jesus touched on this, but when you, when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now, there's a lot more going on in that phrase, vain repetitions, than what we're going to cover tonight. There, there's the obvious applications, Hail Mary, full of grace, Mother of all living, blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, pray for our sins now and the hour of our death, amen. Would that qualify as a vain repetition? Yeah, and it also is directed at the wrong person. If you're not careful, the Lord's Prayer can become a vain repetition. Those are obvious. But I tell you, we Christians, we're bad about it too, aren't we? Our vain repetitions can find their way to the dinner table, can't they? Yeah. How how do you guard against that? Whether you use the Scripture or you don't, you guard against that by making sure you're purposeful and thoughtful about what you're talking to God about. Lord, We're about to eat. And it sure does look good, and I appreciate it. And I thank you for it. Please use it to give me the energy I need to serve you. Thank you for whoever prepared it. And put some thought into it. Again, it doesn't have to be long. Put some thought into it. Have you ever seen the movie Sheffy? He sits down to eat. And he thanks the Lord for the food, and I think he says something about, but he'd be a lot better with some biscuits. <laughs> He's being honest. Let me tell you, you know who the most honest prayer I know right now in my life is Asher. He got disciplined for something one time, and he prayed, and he told the Lord all about it. And mom did this, and mom did that. And I don't think she should have. And I mean, he told the Lord on us. I was a little bit nervous that the Lord might take his side. Watch out for vain repetitions. Y'all, I think we're going to get this done tonight. Maybe. Next, read imaginatively. Let's go over to John 21, shall we? John 21. Now, I'm going to offer you some suggestions here. Hear me out before you dismiss them as being scary. Our imagination should never, ever, ever supersede what the Word of God clearly says. We know that, right? But is it wrong to use your imagination in those areas that are blank? I don't think so. I don't think so. Who gave us our imagination so long as it's sanctified and useful? God did. I'll give an example. When I read Acts chapter, hold your place here. Let's just look at this real quick. Acts chapter 5. I'll give an example of me using my imagination. Ananias and Sapphira have made this covenant. They're going to go in. They're going to, they're going to sell a property for this much. They're only going to give this much, but they're going to say they gave this much, and then everybody will think, oh, they're so awesome Christians and everything. So they'll make a little bit of money, and they'll get the, the street cred in the church too. And so Ananias is the first to come in. He lays it at the apostles' feet, verse number 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. There's a whole lot of people, and I used to be one of them, that read that passage and imagined Peter with fire in his eyes. 
just raining down judgment on Ananias. Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? I've, my imagination no longer takes me there. The church is still in its infancy, and it is a very real possibility that Peter and Ananias knew each other very well. Ananias is part of the first group of Christians. Oh, I don't think he had fire in his eyes. I think he had tears in his eyes. And my imagination takes me to a Peter that says, Oh, Ananias, why? Why? Why has Satan filled that heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? The Bible doesn't say either. But when I read it, that's what I see. And that's okay. I may get to heaven and I may say, Ananias, how did it really go? Oh, Peter was mad. And yes, I do believe Ananias is in heaven. I believe he was a saved man that made a bad decision. And sometimes Christians make bad decisions and God says, you can't stay there anymore. Even still. So let's read a passage with our imagination. Let's, let's take a look. First of all, rewriting the text. Now, now, listen, I'm not saying rewriting the Bible. Stay with me. But rewriting the text using definitions. Andy, what in the world do you mean? All right, let's look at John chapter 21, verse number 15. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto me, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. Now what I want to do is I want to go back through that text, verses 15 through 17, and I want to rewrite it in my mind. There's the imagination. Using definitions and insights and things that I've learned about the passage and filling in some blanks. Okay, For instance... Notice right off the bat, he calls him Simon, not Peter. What's he doing? He's hearkening back to his pre-saved name. He's saying, Simon, you're not acting. You're living in the carnal. You're living in the flesh right now. And so I have to answer you accordingly. All right? Then there's the other question I want to, I want to dig into. When he says, lovest thou me more than these, what's he talking about? There's some very learned men that have all kinds of ideas as to what he's talking about, and they all diverge. There's three possibilities. When he says, lovest thou me more than these, could he be saying, Simon, do you love me more than you love these fish and these nets and these boats? Do you love me more than this? Or... He could be saying, Simon, do you love me more than you love your fellow disciples? Or he could be saying, do you love me more than these love me? Now, I used to discount that one and say, that's probably not it. But there's one thing that makes me think it might be. What do we see in Peter all the time? When Jesus said, you're all going to leave, you're all going to flee, what did Peter say? <laughs> not me. They might all, but not me. Is Jesus taking aim at that pride? Maybe. Can't say for sure, but Maybe. Something else we notice. Jesus three times says, do you love me? 
and Peter three times answers, but there's two different words for love there. You've got agape love, that self-sacrificing, the highest form of love, the love that speaks to God and his love for us. And then you've got phileo love, which is a good love, but it's a lesser love. It's a familial love. Then it's interesting to me that at times he says, feed my sheep, and at times he says, feed my lambs. So let's, let's dig into that for a second, just for a second. I've got to stand for this. Verse 15, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me, agape, more than these, he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love phileo, thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Notice he drops the more than these now. He says, Okay, this isn't about anything else. This is me and you, bud. Second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest agape. Thou me, he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love phileo thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time. Now, this is fascinating to me. The third time he says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest phileo thou me. Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love phileo thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Now, here's what I've done. All these questions, all these terms, all these insights, all these wonderings I have put in to this passage. Now, I'm going to read to you what I have written in my Bible is a kind of an amplified understanding of this exchange. I do not claim this is inspired, but it helps me to understand what's going on here. So as I give this to you, this is in all senses the Andy Davis version, and it is subpar, but it helps me, okay? Jesus says, you've been the carnal, you've been on the carnal side here lately, Simon, so I'm going to address you accordingly, and I'm going to call you Simon. Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me fully? Do you love me more than you love these fish and all that comes with them? Do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Do you love me more than they do? I don't know which one he means. He could mean all three. Peter's response, yes, Lord. You know that I am really fond of you like family. That's what he's saying. Jesus says, okay. When he says, feed my sheep, there's two different words for feed there too. Then here's what you're going to have to do, Peter. You're going to have to lead. You're going to have to lead my less mature followers, lambs, to good grazing lands. Okay. Then in verse 16, Simon Do you love me unconditionally and preeminently? Yes, Lord, you know that I am so fond of you like your family. Okay. Then you're also going to have to tend to my mature followers like a shepherd. Verse 17. Simon, I've asked you twice. And all you've been able to give me is that phileo love. So I'm going to ask you, okay, do you really love me like family? If that's what you're going to give me, do you really love me that much? Lord, you know all things. And you know that if I'm honest, I can only love you to the level that I do. I want to love you more, but this is where I am, and I just am not there yet. Jesus says, okay, take my mature followers to good grazing lands. Now, what do we take from that, that exchange? A couple of things. 
What is the setting of this exchange, of this conversation? What are they gathered around? They're gathered around a fire, specifically a fire of coals. Did you know there's only one other place that a fire of coals is mentioned in the Gospels? You talk about setting the stage. You better believe Peter looked at that fire of coals and remember the last time he was around one. How many times does Jesus ask, does Jesus ask Peter, does he love him? Three times. How many times did Peter deny him? Three times. Is Peter in public or is he in private? He's in public in that the other disciples are there. Was he in public or private when he did the sin? All of this is the restoration that Jesus is doing. He's forgiven him already, but now it's time to restore him. It's time to put him back in line to do what he's meant to do, and it begins with the sermon at Pentecost. That's why in the midst of all this, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He keeps talking about feeding sheep and lambs. He is preparing Peter for his pastoral role. And isn't it interesting that Peter finally gives up and says, you know I don't love you like agape. I'm not there yet. I can't give it yet. And and Jesus still assigns him to do the work. Even though God knows that we don't measure up, he still has a job for us to do. He still has something for us. There's been so many times that I've sat in that office back there on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night and at times even a Wednesday night and I have said, God, I don't have it. I'm not good enough. I'm not the man for this. You picked the wrong guy. And God says, okay, we'll work on that. Right now, go out there and preach. What's happening here? How do we get that? By reading imaginatively. By digging in and saying, Lord, fill in the blanks. That's not the same level as inspiration. Of course not. But you don't think that God wants to use your mind to fill in the blanks and teach you some things? Yes, the hidden things, the secret things belong unto God, but that doesn't mean he never gives them away. And I can't preach any of it as doctrine, but I can sure preach it. A couple other things and we're done. When you read imaginatively, rewrite the text using definitions and insights and things like that. Something else that helps is have someone read aloud. We talked about this in Bible class. You have gates of learning. And the more gates you use, the more you learn. And so reading is great. But if you're reading and you're hearing, twice the learning. If I called this name, how many of you know who I'm talking about? Alexander Scorby. When I was a kid, I was convinced that's what God sounded like. That rich, baritone British voice. And every fundamental family in America at some point has had Alexander Scorby playing in their house. From the 80s, anyway. Somewhere at the house, I still have the big pack of tapes. You've got to flip through five of them to find the, the chapter you want. I cannot overstate how much it helps to read while you listen. It keeps you on pace. It helps keep you focused. It, 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 it actually makes things more efficient and faster because I tend to speed up and slow down and, you know, and all that, and it just keeps me going. Well, Andy, I don't know where to find Alexander Scorby tape. You don't need them. You got a smartphone? YouTube it. It is so easy to find. Most Bible apps have a feature where you can have the Bible read to you aloud. You may not like that particular voice, but but it's not hard to find. When I'm studying for a passage, at some point, on average, I'm not trying to sound all spiritual or everything, the kids looked at me like I was nuts. On average, I'll read a passage that I preach a minimum of seven times. This 
last message I I read, I think I read Philemon 13 times, something like that. Um, When we were doing through the book of Galatians, I read the book of Galatians every day, every day. But at some point in that process, I will read the passage aloud. And it amazes me. It never stops amazing me. How many times I'll, I'll read it aloud and realize I missed something reading it silently. A third suggestion. Vary your setting. I'm, I'm all for the predictability of having a specific place that you read your Bible, you do, you do your devotions. I'm all for that. But there are times that it is helpful to mix things up a little bit. I have several places that I read my Bible. One of my favorite places, wedding, wedding, weather permitting, is my gazebo. I have a one of those uh, weatherproof New Testaments that you can actually just throw in the water. It doesn't hurt it. I keep it up in the little rafter of the gazebo. I keep it in there. And I, a lot of times I'll go out there and just pull that down, dust it off, and read out there. Sometimes it's my kitchen table. Sometimes it's upstairs at the desk in our bedroom. Sometimes it's, there have been times I've taken the car and just driven off to somewhere quiet and sat in the car and read my Bible. Sometimes it's in that study, and sometimes I go find somewhere else in the building to read. It's interesting. Sometimes I find somewhere quiet, and sometimes I find somewhere noisy. It just works out. But I find that varying my setting and reading the Bible in different places sometimes really helps. This is especially helpful if there's a place you know. It takes a little effort, but if you go there, if you go there, it really tunes your mind to the things of God. Maybe it's out in the woods. I know a lot of Christians that use deer stands for more than hunting. It's not a sin to get out in a boat and read your Bible. One of my great, one of the things I miss a lot, my grandparents had a place on the James River down in Surrey County. Um, it was in a place called Guilford Heights. If you keep going, you go down to a place called Spring Grove. And uh, it was directly across the James River from Williamsburg and Jamestown and, and those places. And their place was on a, the lot was on a cliff over the beach, overlooking the river. The 4th of July, you could sit there in the backyard and watch the fireworks at Williamsburg across the river. It was just nothing like it. And it was so neat because it was seven miles across at that point, seven miles across. And so you'd see the fireworks, and then about you know 20 seconds later, you'd hear them. I'm sorry to say that the majority of the time I spent down there, I I was either young or I wasn't living for the Lord, but I had a window of time in which my grandparents still had that place, and I was trying to live for the Lord. And one of my favorite things to do was to go down on the beach with my Bible and read because it was seven miles across, about the same size as the Sea of Galilee. And I would imagine because there wasn't much traffic there in that part of the river. You really couldn't make out a whole lot on the other side of the river. There wasn't much on our side. It was pretty primitive looking. And I thought, I wonder if this is what it was like. And it just gave me a varied setting that helped me really enjoy the Word of God just that little bit more. If uh, I have some relative I don't know that is loaded and they die, and they leave me with... Three and a half million dollars. I'll use two and a half to build the Family Life Center. I'll use the other million to buy a lot on that river. Just so I can do that again. What about your kids' college? We'll figure that out. Vary your setting. As much as we hate to say it like this, even our spiritual disciplines can get a little bit ho-hum if we don't on purpose try to do something about that. And that's okay to try to do something about that. 
I cannot tell you how shocked I am we got it all done tonight. I'd love to tell you it's the discipline of a preacher that knows what he's doing, but it's not. It's the work of God.